You're listening to the 16th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about unspecified women. Mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to this one like one watches a video of a car accident over and over again in slow motion. Episode 16, Three Chord Song. This song is partly about feeling caught between everything, not fitting in anywhere, being in my 40s, and not feeling any more a part of anything than I had in my teens, feeling like I'd fallen between the cracks. By the time I'd crossed that 40-year-old line, I found I had pretty much given up hope of marriage and kids, which had been very important to me. I mean, there's a limit on how much younger than yourself you're going to have to marry. If you're a man who would like kids, eventually, as serious rather than mere hookup relationships with a broad age gap are frowned upon in middle-class people. For the upper and lower classes, of course, they are commonplace, even for presidents. Before, I'd been in my 20s and 30s, and I'd tried to form connections with women of that same age range. Age wasn't really something I'd had to think about much. But as 40 approached, hope died. That just happened naturally in me. I was supposed to have married a woman by that stage of my life, and I hadn't managed it. Conventional wisdom is that you should always believe in yourself and never give up. Believe. Never give up. Never surrender. Well, that conventional wisdom started increasingly to sound to me like conventional tripe foolishness spouted by people who didn't have to be me, particularly at my advanced age. Now, as a single 40-year-old man, I started to get a taste of what it means to live that role. Middle-aged women complain that they are suddenly invisible, that men stop looking at them, thinking about them, trying to talk to them, commenting on their appearance. Well, we single middle-aged men are creepy simply by being middle-aged and carrying that certificate of disapproval from the female species with us everywhere we go, suspiciously, conspicuously single. People stare at us and they giggle. They speculate. What on earth could possibly explain us? What do we do at night? Just by being in a room, if you're single, male, and over 40, you're making it a few degrees more creepy in there. Ask anyone. If you're a middle-aged woman in a room with younger people, you're likely just making it more motherly in there, more supervised, making sure people feel safe. I mean, being in your early 30s and going on a date with a woman in her early 20s is creepy enough, gives many people the screaming heebie-jeebies. But can you even date women in their 20s if you've turned 40? Not unless you're too rich or too poor for it to matter. Joanna, a nearly 40-year-old former brethren divorcee who lives on a sheep farm with a whole bunch of sheep, has no problem with it, though. I'm currently in a relationship with a 13-year age difference. It has been going strong for about a year now, and the goal and understanding is that it will be a lifelong commitment. I don't think age difference matters much as long as the maturity level of both people is comparable. 
there's love shown as care and affection. There's mutual respect for each other. And there's trust that manifests itself in the form of honesty and the ability to be your true self with each other. Now, some would say that one can't worry about what people think slash these things. And I haven't really. In my 30s and 40s, I entertained the notion and was up for dating younger women despite everything. Was willing to wear that stigma of being creepy if it meant a lasting relationship working out. And I'm very immature for my age. But the reality was that many women of my generation and the following one, including women like Joanna, have felt safest connecting with younger and less educated men rather than what had been until their cohort traditional. Often, they have been able, to varying degrees, to invert that traditional expectation of marrying a slightly older, slightly more educated, significantly more affluent man, and instead maintain a romantic partner who is, in practical terms, often more of a personal assistant, someone they can manage. Another reality is that if you do try to date younger women, you have to meet all their young friends who are bound to have at least one among their number who finds the reality of you being there and being old creepy. Also, you end up having to listen to their music. There is no other reason why I would have found myself listening to Jimmy Eat World, Three Doors Down, Sunny Day Real Estate, Death Cab for Cutie, or One Direction than that I was dating adult women who were still somehow into that shit. An enchanted moment And it sees me through It's enough for this restless warrior Just to be with you Can you feel the love tonight? It is where we are It's enough for this wide-eyed wanderer That we got this far Easy, easy, and a one, two, three, oh. Easy, easy, if you come with me, oh. Easy, easy, and a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, nine. Why should we care for what they're selling us anyway? We're so much younger than you know. Oh, you don't have to be the you don't have to be scared, babe You don't need a plan Of what you want to do Won't you listen to the man that's loving you Going out tonight Changes into something red Her mother doesn't like that kind of dress Monster of a missing piece of innocence She loves
are listening to the Wicked Podcast. So, like I say, I'd given up. And people all told me to never give up. Like it mattered. Like trying was what helped people meet and connect with others. But suddenly, there was a brand new, untried way of meeting large numbers of surely healthy and well-adjusted single young women, unlikely to hurl abuse, obsess over nothing, and argue about politics. You, you've got to tell us before we look at this video, what is an internet? Would you mind just you know, sharing that with us? For, for, the, for the four or five people that don't know what an internet is, would you tell us? Straight through my 30s and 40s, I was way too online and without trying at all, met many women of all types, including some particularly troubling ones. And I was rapidly coming to some conclusions. The majority of women who had been sensible dating choices when they were younger, but were now in their 30s and 40s, didn't seem to be online. They were in kitchens and living rooms and bedrooms, backyards, and at soccer practice with husbands and serious partners and little kids. What was left online as to women in their 30s and 40s came with long lists of disclaimers. Not available weekends, severe daddy issues, apt to lie unthinkingly, wants to borrow large sums of money, gets aroused primarily by starting endless arguments and inviting personal insults, doesn't view herself as primarily or exclusively a woman, lost her license due to driving while impaired recently, has four kids by four men, none of whom are allowed legally to be in her life or approach her domicile, may cause headaches, nausea, and vomiting, do not operate heavy machinery, not available in Nebraska. I can only imagine the disclaimers that have been affixed to me over the years, often by people who barely knew me. Another thing, if a woman my age pursued me, sought me out, she invariably turned out to have serious, clinical, medicated or very medicatable emotional problems and maybe a husband or two, quite likely still in the picture, at least to an uncomfortable degree. And being between two people who are a bit slow about divorcing isn't a good feeling. Joel had this to say. The only time I've actually been in a relationship, it was brief. The relationship was brief. The courtship took a while. And it was a strange one. It was someone who was already dating someone and who initially I wasn't attracted to her. I just was buddies with her at, at a job. And she peppered in little things you'd see a couple walk by and say um, if the guy was really tall she was short she'd say that's what we'd look like as a couple or she'd ask me you know what do you think of a couples doing this and i'd say well if i was in a relationship i'd do that and she'd be like oh that's what i wish my boyfriend was like and she peppered in little things gradually one night i had a dream that we were in a relationship and i woke from the dream thinking that would be great and that began my problems in that area because I started to do things that were very uncharacteristic to the point where I, of all people, I, you'd never think I was a guy on the side while someone's dating somebody and then watching her go through a pregnancy that she aborted. But regardless, like watching my cuckoo bird is going to hatch in another nest and feeling the guilt and, oh, it was a miserable experience. But I remember when I came out of that relationship, it was a secret relationship. I couldn't talk to anybody about it for the longest time. And when she was gaslighting me and doing things to hurt me that way, show me how irrelevant I was, I, I knew what she was doing. What hurt was I couldn't tell anyone. I really don't think that she could have steered and maneuvered me in the way she did if not for my personal upbringing and very ritualized 
manner of life at a young age where visual cues and symbols and little things heavily affected me. I, I could reframe the whole story like uh, like some folklore story about a witch tricking somebody, and it, it, the metaphor works. She figured out that there was something there in me that could be taken and led, and she did, and it was brutal. I had one determined woman drive up from America to visit me, and when my ancient stone walls stayed up to her, especially given the general impression I was getting from her as to a shaky emotional state, she returned to a psych ward when she returned to her home state. It was kind of like that for me as the years passed, encountering women on the internet, imported crazy, dial-up dysfunction, one-meg mental illness— Increasingly, the mission seemed a fool's errand, finding a woman who was even theoretically capable of causing me erections and who also wasn't crazy and didn't have substance abuse problems, serious emotional dysfunction, or worse. By my age, this idea didn't really seem to be something one could confidently hang one's hat upon in terms of hopes and dreams for the near future. But people warned me that if I stopped trying, whatever that meant, above and beyond my usual meeting all of the women on the internet who were arguing about politics and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and being raised in fundamentalist homes or learning to fight with medieval swords or read Homer or Beowulf or write songs and so on and so on and so on and so on, on, and reconnecting with anyone all of my past connections connected me to on there, of course, I would wind up living in a cabin in the woods alone. The horror. The horror. The stats suggest that despite all expectations and preconceived notions, we have never had so many people like me in the world before. People who failed to connect like laptops in areas with particularly bad Wi-Fi. But we didn't, and largely don't, know this. We all think we're the only ones, and the longer we learn to get by, living as singletons alone, the more single-shaped we and our cars and homes and pets and fridges and lives all get over the years. You are listening to the Wicked Podcast. I had my midlife crisis early on, in my early 40s. I bought a sports car, a big black Dodge Charger that is particularly bad in Canadian winters, and had an ill-fated, long-distance kind of relationship with a passionate, exciting woman who was a fair bit younger than me, with a similar religious background to mine. When I met her, she'd been in an on-again, off-again, on-again, off-again relationship with a Christian guy. They were really, really trying to get engaged, and it just didn't seem to ever quite happen without them breaking up. The two of them just didn't work at all. They were very different kinds of people. You know, they were the same age and in the same church fellowship and all that, so why wouldn't it work? They would have gotten married if only they could stay together long enough to date for long. And then, after having had a falling out with him, she got my number somehow and phoned me out of the blue, full of compliments and conflict. She'd seen me talking on Facebook about my Christian upbringing and wanted to phone to object to my views. And so she did. Picked the argument right up from where it left off in the Facebook comments. So hot. We immediately began a relationship of sorts that mainly consisted for a few years of her randomly dropping in from out of town, randomly phoning me to explain for hours into the night how awesome I was and how into me she was, how special and unique I was, but how we really, really, really couldn't be together and how terribly, terribly, terribly sad that made both of us. And it did make us terribly sad. Were we ever together? A couple? 
In a relationship? I think for a time there, maybe we were. Kinda. Like, for a minute or two. But the song for this episode is a song I wrote toward the start of getting to know her. I wrote it because once again, just when it seemed like she was never getting back with her sometime boyfriend, the two not having spoken for some months and the two of us getting very comfortable with each other texting all day long, there'd be a Bible conference. She'd double down on her fast-fading faith, repent of me in my deliciously wicked ways, and they'd be nominally back together again for maybe a month, long distance. And usually... If she didn't actually randomly drop in from out of town to hug me and try to befriend my sweet little cat Roger, who never ever warmed up to her for a moment, she'd phone and we'd talk for hours into the night about why we weren't a thing that could ever be. And these were the most passionate, regretful, longing goodbyes one could imagine. Mostly, she wanted to listen to my voice. I just wanted her to be okay and to be near me. Carol weighed in on the subject. I have a song about trying to start a relationship with somebody who kept returning to her ex repeatedly. Her ex? Yeah. So it's like you'd start something and then, she, and then she's back with him and then they break up and then you sort of, okay. And you start talking and then she's back with him again, very briefly. And that's what I call the a recycler. <laughs> a recycler? Yeah. I'm not sure. The British talk about going back for afters. I think that more relates to divorced couples having sex, but um, yeah, the idea that you're not quite over this person. You keep going back. I had a friend that did that and eventually married them. And I think she went back out of guilt. And I don't think it's been that great. But she stayed married? She stayed married. I'd say a lot of the people I do know from the meeting are still married. Because they're not supposed to divorce. Yeah, they're not supposed to divorce. It doesn't mean that they won't in the future. But, I mean, it's well over 80%. 80% of meeting people don't divorce or what are you saying? Yeah, do not divorce. What do you think? We don't have a lot of meeting people left around here, but yeah, there's not a lot of divorce. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot more awkward situations where they're living in different provinces or states, even though they're still married or, you know, like there's a lot of not getting a divorce, but not living together because they can't divorce, but they can't live together. Yeah. Megan. After having had Harry, her Plymouth Brethren Christian Church high-demand group boyfriend, ghost her entirely in keeping with his isolationist church's requirements to allow him out of the doghouse with them, which doghouse had involved almost complete shunning of Harry by the community, while also being forbidden, as usual, to communicate with worldlies like Megan, eventually reached out to Megan again after their church-mandated breakup and radio silence and the two communicated secretly for a bit and were very happy. But then, sitting under the sound of the word, Harry's conscience pricked him, and he cut Megan off again. And this wasn't the first time he'd done this to her, leaving her hanging and heartbroken. The back and forth, on again, off again, me or your high-demand church group stuff, eventually started to really do Megan's head in. Reaching out to weigh in on it, she had this to say for the podcast. The problem with getting back with your ex is that whatever issue you had which led to the breakup that same problem is going to keep coming back and it's just not going to work out unless real work is put in to solve that problem and most of the time people don't want to put in the work and you tell yourself, maybe this time will be different. 
maybe if I do this, maybe if I don't react in this way, maybe if I do better, you kind of trick yourself into thinking this time it'll work, it'll be different this time. But the reality is it won't be. And in a toxic situation, you're essentially telling the other person, I'm okay with being disrespected. I'm okay with being treated poorly. Because when you go back to them, you're just enabling their behaviour and telling them it's okay to treat you that way. Because they don't have any incentive to change now. They've got you back. So it's fine. It just doesn't work out. And it's not healthy. You're essentially giving a little piece of yourself away each time that you go back. And at some point, you need to stop and choose yourself. You are listening to The Wicked Podcast. Stuff happened after this song was written, of course. She made up and broke up and made up and broke up with her boyfriend more times, eventually for good, and we got to know each other better. Over a few years, we grew quite close, and she retreated and closed down, then returned and fled and came back and ran off several times. No sooner would I reach the point where I truly thought, F this, but she'd be there, right by my side, soulful-eyed and warm. She dated non-Christian guys, and they dumped her for being Christian and closed and high-maintenance and attachment-avoidant. She just kept showing up in my life again and again. We could no more stay broken up than she could stay together with her guy, though we'd never quite been a couple. And for middle-aged guys? Hot younger women make us stupid. Really stupid. They're like catnip for us, or crack, or kryptonite. And in Christian circles... There certainly were any number of people and things connecting the two of us from all sides of the various divisions and church groups in the community. Brethren and other Christian people own local businesses, work in schools, and have their kids in local schools where I work. And we brethren people tend to all be related one to another through a mixture of relations by marriage or by blood or both. So whether I wanted them or not, there were daily, hourly reminders and connections between all of us in general and the two of us in particular. She was, at the time, like others I knew and myself, a great writer of blogs, which is what we did before podcast, and she was an earnest, passionate, but conflicted Christian. So, for whatever reason, mostly to let her know that I thought she was a poetic blogger and a good writer, I took phrases from her blog and wrote them into a song, just to show her that they were lyrical. Because she didn't think she could be a creative. I wanted to collaborate with her in some creative way despite that. Because imagine, right? A girlfriend who you did music with instead of her resenting time you spent at band practice. My ex-brother-in-law had to divorce my sister in order to pursue his music. I tried, a bit, to give the music I put together for her in my living room one Saturday afternoon some of the flavor of the music I knew she loved the most. But I wrote the song and recorded the parts in an hour or two in the one go and emailed it to her. So it wasn't very polished. Walked up the hill in the dark tonight Saw twinkling stars and rolling hills I know God knew I needed the ocean And he made a way And here I am 
I chose And because of the ocean I'm so, so glad that I went this way My heart's wrapped up on the salty air And calming waves that never seem to end I need to walk and be unafraid Of who I am, of who God made When I stand and see the sea spread out And the houses nestle on the rocks Protected and sheltered from the ocean wind I stand out there And he sees me I miss everything from a place back home Pretty much so much of my heart Is left behind But the salt, the stars and the sea I hear some parts of this corner of the world Don't change some parts of this corner of the world don't change. She didn't like it at all and was confused by me doing this with her words to begin with. They were her words, not mine. How dare I? Things never really worked with the two of us because everything was always backward somehow. My compliments and my praise shamed her and made her feel unworthy of them. My gifts made her feel indebted and bad. Flowers I sent made her feel like someone who was unworthy of flowers. And my annoyance and impatience attracted her. The nicer I was to her, the more that drove her away. When I got impatient or bored, there she was, back again. My treating her like she was special made her feel horribly like someone who didn't deserve to be treated like that. When I wrote blog entries or books and left at anything that might have anything at all to do with her, this upset her just as much as including her sometimes did. She'd not be talking to me, and if I wrote something, she'd always read it to see if anything mentioned her, getting hurt if it did or if it didn't. And over time, the fewer and fewer reasons there were for us not to just be together, the more contrived and random the reason that she told herself why we couldn't be gaunt. The more obstacles there had been to our relationship, the more she had seemed to want it. If it wasn't going to happen, the more romantic and precious and star-crossed and exciting, clandestine, forbidden, and mysterious it became, the more safe and fun it was to live in, if only. But eventually, we ran entirely out of those comforting impossibilities, barriers, and obstacles. And it should have been clear sailing. And so that was it for us. It was time for the phoning up and dropping in to mourn the impossibility of our relationship to finally end. Because if we really wanted to have it all, we sure could have had it. As you might expect, she and the original boyfriend soon married other people many years ago, leaving me, as always, the odd man out, feeling sorry for myself and pissed off, but with a dumb three-chord song from the start of it all to subject you all to. I discussed this with Susan. You know, it was really that guy finding somebody else that, you know, ended it. Mm -hmm. And thank God, you know, those didn't, you know, but it wasn't because I had some, I didn't really have a real clear sense of myself or what I wanted. I was always like, well, what do you want? What does the other person want? I need to please them. I had a hard time knowing my own mind. So I think relationship, it was, you know, ultimately the guy dating somebody else that ended it for good. 
Ultimately, upon reflection, I realized that I didn't share her goal of becoming a failed church member who fell away and fell short of the high standards of a church system she had no real major beefs with. I was an already kicked out church guy with specific beefs against my own group, as well as receipts and observations regarding same. And like an elephant, I had not forgotten. And people in Christian circles I'd never heard of had certainly heard of me. I was, after all, the atheist writer who wrote those hateful, sacrilegious things, the atheist teacher at the high school who was hateful and who'd walked away from his church and refused to talk to them, who hated Christians and hated God and was always trying to hurt them any way I could, wasn't I? I mean, wasn't I? Many Christians are fine with being judged wrong by a church as to how they live their life, so long as no one accuses the church itself of being wrong about anything. Catholics are particularly like this. And there was a problem. I wasn't what they were saying I was. I was something entirely more difficult to deal with than that, let alone date. Ultimately, this woman said that my talking about my brethren past hurt people. And why would anyone do that? I feel kind of horrible for talking about this in a podcast episode, but I guess I'm just a hateful, horrible person. Everybody says so. And besides, no one's ever going to listen to this. Still, it makes you think. When a woman steeps daily, hourly in shame, as so many of us Christian folks were trained and required to do, I don't think she's able to quite respect anyone who actually likes her, though she wants that more than anything. Easier to tell herself you don't really accept her than it is to change your narrative that she is too horrible for anyone decent to accept. But how cruel for memes on the internet and people in general to tell her that until she truly loves herself, just that small attainable goal, no man will truly love her in return. And that's wrong, because I can tell you, dear listener, I did. But maybe that's the problem I was having with various women. I liked them, and they couldn't respect a man who did, and all too often somehow married guys who didn't really seem to like them so much. Or maybe a woman of this kind often needs someone she believes to be as broken a person as she is, and I give a pretty good outward impression of someone who's sane and sure and together. And I've never been so emotionally unwell that I absolutely required medication or admittal to a ward of some kind. Some people would disagree with that. But the various women I've known who needed antipsychotics to, I don't know, go to the pharmacy and pick up their antipsychotics, haven't always found me able to properly identify with them. I'm a good listener, but I have my limits. This unhappy, mercurial woman in particular, though, she got to know me far better than anyone ever has to this day. It's not even close. And I got to compliment her sometimes and send her flowers and write and record her songs sometimes, not that she always liked it. And for me, that was a real privilege, a central part of my being male, expressing appreciation and attraction for a woman who trusted me. You would not believe how many women let me hang around and flirting was going on and we seemed to be trying inarticulately to connect, but one attempt to compliment her in a direct or sincere way and she literally just told me to f*** off because she couldn't deal, not with compliments, not with real ones, not serious ones, not really. Another one said, I do not need you to be physically attracted to me right now. It was like I needed a note from her before I felt a tug of sexual interest. This one was okay with all that some of the time, a bit. 
definitely more comfortable focusing on our mutual attraction than talking about problems, definitely felt entirely more comfortable focusing on me than on her. So many Christian women are raised to feel successful as women if they can please a man. And that is ultimately, to most of us men, fairly unfulfilling in the end. One time this one sadly interrupted me mid-sentence on the phone to say, You're always happy when you're talking to me. Because I was. But she was so determined to get to know me and try to make me happy that she couldn't help but try and mostly fail to hide the full depth of her emotional distress from me and then not know what to do when I didn't flee out the door. So it was always her running away when there was any danger of me catching more than a brief glimpse behind the curtain that she kept up. And it's not like I'm entirely emotionally resilient and open, warm, and healthy myself. By this point, my heart was like a big rock, and she had somehow, over and over again, melted it into hot goop. And that's not easy to do. Eventually, as the full extent of her emotional problems really started to catch up with her, after a lifetime of denial and repression and good old Christian leave it with the Lord and never think or talk about it, I made the mistake of trying to counsel her to do what I did, to keep on keeping on, to view emotional problems as just life, to start to talk about the problem, start to deal, but not make it an identity, not make it everything. But that's what she increasingly chose to do post me. I didn't know to support that. I didn't figure that out fast enough. And when you're young and pretty, there's always going to be someone nearby who won't screw up in quite the same way as the last guy did. And so he loses. Ultimately, I am always very me, and as my sister said, I have little say in the matter most of the time. You're listening to The Wicked Podcast. More on belief in God. I spoke before about never choosing to believe in God, but despite being given a multitude of reasons not to believe in one, mostly by my Christian upbringing itself, finding that, quite outside any choice I am making, I do. Oddly, I talk to God mostly when I'm driving, because when I'm driving, I'm not on my phone, reading, watching TV, or talking to people, or working. And so that happened today. As I drove an SUV whose exhaust system sounds like it's come partly or almost entirely loose, which I was only driving because the car I just picked up from the garage to have a brake line repaired now has, instead of pretty much no brakes, a left rear brake that's locking on dangerously. The flow of my thoughts today started with, I find I still believe in God, but do I just love God the way a woman on social media was announcing today that she truly, totally, personally just does? Not like her, I don't think, but I talk to him from time to time. We have a relationship. It's better than the one with my father, at least. So I started with that, and that's what came to me. Dropped of a whole cloth into my frontal cortex with an audible thunk. I've heard of the idea of loving up, loving across, and loving down. That many of us Christians found it easiest to love down at people we had authority over, or who needed us, or whom we otherwise felt in some superior position to. And that we struggled to flip that, loving people who have authority over us, who we need, or who we otherwise felt in a subservient position to. But that most difficult of all for many of us was to form fair, mutually beneficial, lasting, close, strong relationships across with peers, with our equals. 
And then I thought about relationship with God and thought about whether it was an up, across, or down thing for the two of us, me and him. I was raised to expect relationship with God to go two of those three ways. And that's how my relationship with my father, church people, and many other authority figures in my life went too. Like this. I often felt like I had an unpleasant relationship, a combative or soul-crushing relationship with my father, church people, and many other authority figures in my life. If you don't believe in souls, imagine I said identity-crushing there, which is, of course, the modern way of saying that. Instead of my soul is female, we say I identify as female. But really, it's the same thing. Female or male soul born into the wrong body. I identify as saved or lost, chosen and redeemed or doomed and damned. Dear listener here tonight, what are your adjectives? Do you identify as saved or as lost? Put them in your bio. My default relationship with God seemed to me to be the same as what I'd come to expect from most people in authority over me. God against me. I kind of lived my life braced for him to work to erase me, who I was, how I felt, what I thought and knew, and how I was trying to live my life. That is, in a nutshell, the biggest legacy of my Christian upbringing I can point to. And not just with God. I generally flinch, cover up, and expect all cops, bosses, and authority figures to object to me on all of those levels and try to stamp out, shut out, kick out, and otherwise edit me out of whatever we're in the middle of. And my dad has generally himself felt that way about authority, too. I think both nature and nurture are working together on that one. That's what relationships upward seem to me to all too often feel like. And I don't believe in energy and the vibrating universe manifesting itself to us based on how we perceive it exactly, but that expectation of deletion does seem to be as self-fulfilling as a child's guilty look and attempt to hide something behind her back. I knew that systems I worked under, including my family and my church and school and jobs, spoke a very different line, gave a different-sounding sales pitch, while working pretty hard to keep me crushed underfoot. They taught all of us that the proper, healthy, natural relationship up to God was so good It mainly served to elevate us, God for me. It was about God reminding us that we weren't just regular human beings or even regular church-attending fundamentalist Christians, but special ones, the correct ones, the right ones, the obedient ones, the Bible-following ones, his favorite ones. We were supposed to go to the meetings, read the Bible, and pray a whole lot, and this was supposed to make us feel like we were so elevated, so privileged, so chosen, so predestined, so enlightened, so awakened, so elite— that we just had to then go out into the world and love down at it, sharing with it, bestowing upon it, descending from our ivory pulpits to deign to help, like Jesus, only without all the crazy talk, and definitely with nicer shirts. But I never felt that, never felt like my family Bible reading or church or anything like that, nor my own reading and prayer either, made me feel special, made me feel better, filled with eldritch power to bestow upon an awestruck world. To some of us, the zenith of our divine hopes was simply, you know what, you're going to die, but you're not going to be punished in outer darkness and flames for all eternity. And that felt kind of good. But that was the high point of my positive relationship with God, and all of that was something you had to wait until you died to cash in on. So what about today? 
I guess I failed to have relationships with my father, my church, my schools, my jobs, women, or my God that made me feel lifted up, elevated, special, or whatever. I heard those words at meeting about being chosen, being part of a blood-bought number, but my heart couldn't receive them. Apart from not fearing hell after death, I mainly just felt all of the shame, the terror of getting into trouble with all of the above people and groups without the hope of being recognized as special, valued and accepted by any of them, or rewarded for anything ever. Here's how the positivity worked. Here's how far it went. It wasn't nothing. It was just very limited. I knew my father would protect me from harm and would help me if I got hurt or I needed a ride anywhere he approved of, that is. But he never did anything other than helping me when I really needed him, when there was a problem. And that's not nothing. But he had, in his heart of hearts, no ability to hope or dream. And he always had the expectation of getting punished, whether he did anything wrong or not. And so when we kids had a hope or a dream and wanted a gift for our birthday that reflected it, or lessons or whatever, to help us pursue it, Dad often shied away from it, wanted to protect us from disappointment. And he banded together with the church folk when we kids got crazy ideas like, I'm going to take karate, or I'm going to learn Greek, or I'm going to apply for a grant or scholarship or whatever. Instead of smiling, he reflexively looked troubled. He warned us that it wasn't as easy as that, that we probably wouldn't be able to do it, that things weren't fair, and so on, that those things maybe weren't worth it either, for a Christian especially, that it wouldn't help to spend time on them, because life wasn't like that. Life wasn't, he often said, fun and games, nor a bed of roses. It was hardship and work, and then you die. His own life had been that, through a combination of the circumstances he was born into, the machinations of the highly competitive, sometimes petty, spiteful social climates at his church and at his job. So his personal philosophy, what he expected from God, was summed up in the words of our hymn. This is that thing where you take a waltz rhythm, slow it way down, and write a song with it intended to be sung by people who believe that dancing is wrong. God hath not promised skies always blue Flowers strewn pathways all our lives through God hath not promised sun without rain Without sorrow, peace without pain. Of course, there were more words to that song, but those mainly just bounced off people like us. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the For the trials Help from above Unfailing sympathy Undying love We couldn't hear or receive that part much about God promising to give us daily strength to endure our lives that he quite obviously intended to be fairly empty, boring, meaningless, and generally shitty. And of course, my own take on this song was... 
didn't promise that you would never hunger. I didn't promise that you'd feel no pain. I didn't promise that the sun would never beat down harshly on you. But on the just and on the rest, I send the rain. This sentiment was equally summed up in the song on the radio that Dad liked, guilty worldly pleasure that it was. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden along with the sunshine. There's gotta be a little rain sometime. And so, Dad never planted roses himself, nor bought them for Mom. Roses weren't real. Life wasn't like that, or like a box of chocolates. Other people had those. When people tell me I'm negative, my knee-jerk response is, compared to what? When people say I need to be more positive, my knee-jerk response is, more than this, even? Do you want me to do a wee dance, too? Is whistling while I work in the mines mandatory? Let me talk to my union rep about this. Not sure it's in the collective agreement at all. Many of us have weird parents, but we don't know it. Not really. Often not until years later. I learned something about my dad at McDonald's once when I was a little kid. Before Happy Meals, McDonald's briefly had something called the treat of the week. When adults ordered at the counter, if they had children under 12 with them, if they declared that number of children and asked for the treat of the week for them, the cashiers would dole out these cheap little plastic toys. I wanted Grimace pretty badly. Found him as jolly and friendly as I found Ronald unsettling as a 70s Dylan Mulvaney. And I asked my dad to remember to ask them for one of those toys, a grimace for me and my sister, whatever she wanted. And dad said he would somewhat uncertainly. I didn't understand that my dad had the kind of social anxiety that meant the very prospect of going into a restaurant with a whole bunch of people milling around and following the various social scripts randomly tossed at one involving smoking or non-smoking section queries, larges or smalls, fries or not, and deals or not, and so on, was deeply stressful for him. Dad avoided sit-down restaurants entirely because you couldn't leave quickly, and tipping stressed him out. He came back out to the car with our food and no treats. I asked him, and he said he'd forgotten. I asked him to go up and tell them he'd forgotten to ask for two of them, and he wouldn't and lost his temper at me, though it would have been totally fine for him to do that, because he couldn't. He couldn't socially or emotionally. He had a wordless fear that they'd say no to him, that they'd treat him like some kind of con man trying to get something for free, or that he or I had failed to read some fine print somewhere which would for some reason make us ineligible, or that there was a hidden unknown fee that would actually be charged of who knew how much money. Furious, Dad also forbade me going up to ask. I was confused, heartbroken, and angry. This was yet another thing that went with being us, making all of the sacrifices, doing everything we're supposed to, but not expecting any of the rewards. This was what life was really like, and perhaps this attitude was self-fulfilling. Better to get used to it. We did all of the meeting attendance at least five times a week. We attended the special meetings on top of that. We didn't have a TV or listen to pop music or go to movies or school dances. And for our pains, we ended up in trouble with the meeting left and right anyway, eventually getting selected out. 
we got none of that sweet, sweet family status to pass down to another generation of us, and no one wanted to marry us anyway, apart from the crazy guy wanting to kidnap my sister if she wouldn't marry him in her teens. Maybe my father was a depressive, besides being socially anxious, but then his whole family mostly seemed the same way. And a whole lot of people at our church, too, and in our town. Life was breaking your back, breaking the bank, giving everything you had to never really break even. And we were middle class, in a much easier time economically than we are now. And yet, we weren't black, we weren't living in India, yet we felt very much that our country was systemically oppressive to people like us, that we had a caste system, that we weren't in the high-status upper caste and never would be. There was a glass ceiling. It was just like that. Hoping otherwise was dangerous. Hoping at all was dangerous. If you were middle class, if you weren't from a family with the right last name in the town or the meeting or both, people like that could hope things. I don't choose to believe in God. I just do. And if I'm not careful, I expect this powerful, lofty figure to feel about and treat me the way I've tended to be treated throughout my life, like dirt, like an embarrassment, like a problem, like a joke, as undeserving and lesser. Because in my long life, I've often worked very hard, but I haven't won things, awards, grants, bursaries, trophies, medals, or the like. I've seldom been promoted or given raises, recognized in any good way. So my reflex approach to life is to work hard, to avoid getting in trouble, expecting to be disrespected, mistrusted, laughed at, and resented despite that. And that can be very self-fulfilling. So there's loving up and loving down, But what about that third option? What about loving or relating across? What about trying to interact with God like your two beings relating with one another? God with me. I was raised with complete contempt for Jesus is my buddy type of Christian teaching. And the God I was raised to believe in and still do isn't cuddly or a pushover or mainly occupied with making me feel safe and special each and every day. But what, I mused in my loud SUV driving down the highway, open to the idea that God might want me to learn stuff, but the idea of letting God communicate whether he was into what I was doing or not each day, like praying and envisioning, rather than a personified, unattainably high, angry standard, the pinnacle of whose life was in not annihilating me, probably, and unleashing infinite wrath on his innocent son instead, as that wrath needed to go someplace, and if not on deserving us, then where? How about imagining entering his presence, so to speak, like one enters the throne room with permission, waiting to see if one's presence and proposed interaction is welcome at that point in the day, and then imagining that one doesn't know what's going on at his end and waiting to hear what it might be. Instead of hoping he was cool with everything, while assuming he wasn't, hoping to know the softer side of the Savior, rather than the disappointed, disapproving wrath. How about not assuming disapproval? Because my group taught me two things. God forgave us being born sinful, but never forgave or forgot any wrong or unholy thing we thought or felt, let alone did, ever, not really. Wouldn't destroy us in the afterlife over it, but would ruin and potentially end our very lives over it right now. And Christians, of course, were much worse. They didn't seem to even forgive people like me for existing at all. What if I'd actually been gay or something? What would they have thought then? I was just a nerd who liked Star Wars and reading stuff. But my God thing 
was very odd. This belief that I was eternally forgiven and was his accepted blood-drenched child yet also held to that Olympian daily standard where lightning bolts would rain down on my head if I liked Spider-Man or that song by Aerosmith or had a funny feeling in my Wranglers when seeing Brian's older brother's poster of Daisy Duke in his bedroom. A God who loved me, in theory, but was annoyed I wasn't handing out stacks of gospel literature on street corners every evening. If you are significantly younger than me, imagine I said daily posting Christian memes on social media. Same thing. Equally performative and just as effective in leading precious souls to Christ. Given all of this, I don't expect anything but rejection and adversity and judgment really ever. Not really. And is this just depression? It might go far deeper than just that. It might be something, a bit of Prozac with breakfast and a bracingly cheerful worship service of a Sunday, and a good hug couldn't even scratch. Maybe I'm in such bad state, even veganism, breathing exercises, meditation, and yoga can't save me. So where does this leave me? Not letting Christians accustom me to feeling superior to regular worldly folk, yet a source of daily disappointment and disgust to a normal human being hating God? Too late. Trying to come back from that somehow then, I guess. But there just might be some hope in that middle ground. God is not my buddy, but... Maybe I can do better than I have been doing at letting him speak for himself, like someone who wants to talk or at least not be spoken for by my upbringing, church culture, family, genetics, job, and depression, like he's their puppet. Just that. I don't feel filled with special enlightenment I am bursting to impart. I don't feel like I have anything to give. And yet, somehow, for another couple of episodes at least, this podcast. I didn't have an infinite number of hours of childhood allotted to me and the vast, vast majority of them were spent on Plymouth Brethren-related efforts that are to me more of an obstacle to everything today than they are a stepping stone to much of anything, particularly anything spiritual. And I'm never getting those thousands of hours of childhood back, of course. They were burned away. No wonder I collect vintage toys. And as to God, I don't believe in a God who gives me money and family and success. That just doesn't seem to be Him at all. But... He gives me ideas every time I talk to him and broken people who need to talk. Sometimes artificial intelligence is fun. You are listening to the Wicked Podcast. More about betweenness. This podcast doesn't get shared around much, and it falls between the cracks in terms of what it's doing. It's not affirming traditional brethren or Christian doctrine nor embracing atheism. I'm not a woman, but I'm thinking about feelings more than most guys do and talking about them, but doing that in ways that are perhaps not female-typical either. I'm not a hip young generation everything everywhere all at once, creating newly minted categories for myself just so I can reject what society has decided I am to it, nor am I firmly slotted into societal roles that I think fit me well, or in which I am entirely welcome. I share this podcast on a Facebook group for people who left the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church cult-adjacent group, and those there who are militant atheists want to censor it if it talks about the Bible, except to mock it, and those who are happily attending some new Christian group there don't want me to deconstruct or doubt or devil's advocate or any of that on there either. I also share the podcast on a Facebook group called Heresy After Hours for people who feel alienated from the church background, and many fall into either of the two categories similar to the ones described already. As my dad would say, I can't win for trying. But I don't know how to find the people who might like the podcast. So I really appreciate it every time someone mentions it to someone, or even links someone to part of it, 
If you've ever done that, thank you from the bottom of my cold, stony heart. This song was about feeling like I'd been tricked out of romantic retirement. It increasingly seemed like a final judgment against me had been rendered by society inside the Brethren and outside it with no possibility of appeal or parole. I'd been deemed not worth it, just trouble. But then that thing I've been talking about in this episode happened. A woman got my number from somewhere and phoned me, and then we were texting and phoning all the time. Was I still single? Well, kinda. But there was a woman in her 20s who was in constant daily communication with me much of the time, and she was always full of compliments and interest. There was obvious chemistry. And was she single? Most of the time. But we were in a between place, because that's what she needed. Now, I've often been a guy women are associating with when leaving or having recently left a guy. I've never encouraged a woman to leave her guy, but I've been there if and when that's what they wanted to do in whatever between role that left open to me. When women are unhappy with a man, they tend to seek me out and want me around to serve as some kind of measuring stick, some kind of ideal man mostly ideal because they don't press them for sex, but see all the other stuff that's going on in their lives as being more lastingly important and something I'm willing to talk with them about. But in the eventual absence of the disappointing guy in question, it always soon becomes me who is the disappointing guy. The song for this episode is something I wrote because once again, the thing was happening and I was hurt and disgusted. Charlie Brown, Lucy, and the football. These phone calls and brief visits that were the most passionate goodbyes one could imagine. Her wanting to listen to my voice all the time. In movies, nothing could be more romantic than a couple who can't be together because their families are at war, one of them is lost in the world of dreams, or the board is too small for two people to float on it. And those three are just Leonardo DiCaprio movies. But in real life, although being always apart can really put a knife's edge on your yearn, You wouldn't pay for the popcorn to experience it for too long. Toward the start of it, after being told that she was back with that guy again, feeling like a rusty old tin can that had been kicked up and down the street for a while and then eventually kicked into the trash, I had just enough spiteful energy to take a typical three-chord sequence and spitefully write a disgusted three-chord song I called Three-Chord Song. I did it sneeringly, disgusted at him and her and me and pretty much everything and my limited songwriting abilities in particular. I remember, therefore, writing and recording it rather carelessly. But I had a look, and I see that I did a few unusual things. For one, I was married to the idea of largely abandoning proper verse-chorus-verse-chorus structure. There is a male part and a female part, narrated by a third party, and I wanted the male and female parts to musically sound very different from each other, with it being very clear when the person being quoted changed from the girl to the guy. That's hard to do when you're playing the same three chords, D, A, and G, with a capo on the third fret, over and over and over again in exactly the same order for three minutes straight. But that was part of the challenge. And I had some clear rhythmic ideas in mind, given the fact that I played a heartbeat kick and a snare drum part. And on a separate track, I put in some snare hits to signal the start of the next bit here and there. Because I, get him and no one else does. 
I started it with it simply played on one guitar with a bass part and send it off to Evan for drums. Evan duplicated my snare hit thing on the digital kit. I left my heartbeat kick in the guy sections with Evan playing along. So we asked, what's he got that I don't? She replied. I decided to leave the guy part sparse and gloomy and mostly in the left ear and knock myself out, making the girl part more complicated, layered and pretty, mostly in the right ear. I made the guy's parts mostly be sung in a lower register. I can see that isn't true And she replied I really have to go And so we pleaded Please don't do that And the girls' parts, the harmony ones anyway, strayed more into a higher register, though my vocal range is very limited up there. I can see that isn't true The guy's instrument parts were too thin, so I had this idea in my head of playing a doomy-sounding keyboard part just for him. So I played piano in the left ear, using only left hand playing in a lower register. He replied, I can see that isn't true. And then I played it again, so as not to be perfectly identical, in the other ear. And only played its reverb in the right ear. I can see that isn't true. And, and I put in an aggressive phaser effect on it, phaser on kill, as it were, to make it more creepy, dark, and depressed than the girl part. He replied, I can see that isn't true. And Back in the day, I had tried to play penny whistle on the girl's parts, emphasis on try and it was more than a bit off, as I am no penny whistleist. So I supplemented it with string pads on the keyboard. There I went again on my own. For the guy parts, I left the single acoustic guitar. What's he got that I don't? But for the girl parts, I added in more acoustics. And she replied, then I played a more sprightly piano part for the girl parts, using both left and right hands in a higher register. And then I did what I've been doing on all of my stuff lately, putting me in danger of repeating myself, making my songs all sound the same, or maybe even developing a style of my own. So, a pair of tambourines and shakers in with Evan's drums. Just like get 
And just as I had sweetened Irrelevant from the previous podcast episode, adding harmonious stuff to drop the acoustic plugging away. Now I'm feeling it's not fair that you For this one, I played a pair of drop D acoustics to add some movement to it along with the added percussion. By midnight, after all the harmony vocals and percussion and keyboard stuff I've been doing, it was apparently the end of my workday. And the MS gods were not as kind as usual, and when I was playing the right ear acoustic guitar part, my nerve-damaged fingers were too tired and clumsy to mute the four strings and only play the two I wanted for a drop D power chord. I tried a few more times, and it was getting worse instead of better, so I grabbed some green painter's masking tape, taped off the four ringing unwanted strings, and played the take you heard without any trouble. So Irrelevant got more pop, and this one got a bit more acoustic punky, Nirvana unplugged a bit. There was the usual amount of harmony vocalizing by the time I was done. That was a three-chord song about a middle-aged man. A man who said, why keep trying? And about a girl who said, mister, don't you dare. That was a three-chord song. I was surprised at how much complexity I tried to add into a three-chord song. This is a three-chord song About a middle-aged man A man who said Why keep trying? And about a girl who said, Mister, don't you dare. Your world of people listening to you. Cause you understand so much. You can really get me. Cause you're Bye. 
Three chord song. 